Hello and welcome to Do Good and Do Well, How to Be a Changemaker Without Losing Yourself. If this is your first time here, my name is Sarah Fox and I'm the host of the podcast. I'm also a coach and a mentor and I work with people who want to make a positive contribution in the world, but they want to do that without losing themselves. And if you are back again listening, if this isn't your first outing with Do Good and Do Well, a massive welcome to you as well. I really appreciate you all listening to this podcast. So I'm really excited today because I have one of my brilliant guests returning. Rosie Wilby and I chatted what seems like years and years ago, um, but we had a really good conversation and we felt like there was more to say about what we were talking about. So Rosie, if you don't know her, is an award-winning comedian, an author, a speaker, a journalist and a broadcaster. She's also a podcaster and has created a global hit podcast and a book called The Breakup Monologues. And she spent the last decade investigating the psychology of human relationships. In this episode, we return to some of the themes that we spoke about before, and I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. But we also talk about what Rosie has learned, what we've both learned uh, in terms of resilience in terms of relationships and in terms of reinvention. We talk about freelancing, the publishing industry, arts and culture and all so many things. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Do let us know what you think afterwards. We really love to hear from you. Hello, Rosie, and welcome back to Do Good Yay! and Do Well. You're my first guest that I've had on the second time. Oh, I feel honoured. That's really exciting. And to celebrate that, I did listen to our previous conversation from, I think, around March 2021, yeah. uh, while I was walking Dolly the dog this morning. So I caught up on what we had discussed oh, before. Well <laughs> So I could think about <laughs> well, how to move the conversation forwards and and make sure that we don't we don't go over all the same things. And I don't think we will anyway, because we've both evolved since then and have done many things. Yeah, things feel really different. And thank you for being so prepared as a guest, because as a host, I didn't listen back. Oh, so, so <laughs> I sorry, to, like... sorry to sort of be the annoying swap who's done their homework. <laughs> well, you're also you have much more experience in this whole podcasting thing than I do as well. So you're, you know, you're a seasoned um, professional when it comes to podcasting. Well, I also thought it, what is good, you see, is people might even if they enjoy this conversation, they might go back and listen to the first yes. conversation as well. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, well, they and and or they may have listened to that one and be like, yeah. okay, what's next? Exactly. Um, but for those those who haven't who haven't listened and who don't know you, who are you, Rosie Wilby? Who am I? Yes, hello. I am Rosie Wilby, and I am a comedian and speaker and podcaster and author. And for the last couple of years, I've been best known as the in inverted commas Queen of Breakups, which was a nickname given to me by Radio Four when I appeared on Saturday Live, actually just before the pandemic, and. 
I earned that nickname because my podcast, The Breakup Monologues, explores how we recover from heartbreak and loss and how we transform ourselves and maybe embark on new adventures and perhaps find, as the subtitle of the book, The Breakup Monologues, suggests, find the unexpected expected joy in heartbreak mm. and find a way to to move forwards in in really sometimes positive and exciting new ways and so yes the breakup monologues book was just about to come out when we spoke in 2021 yeah. and so that has been out in hardback for a little while and is coming out in paperback soon as well Oop, paperback Ooh. Is that an exciting thing for authors? Is that like a is that a good thing when it comes out in paperback? Yes, it is because it means you sold enough hardbacks <laughs> for them to keep investing money in you and keep promoting yeah. you. Um, and perhaps this is a, a good route into talking about resilience and and some of the topics that I now talk about um, because I actually popped into your coaching program recently to speak about relationships, resilience and reinvention because I guess since I spoke to you last, I've looked at ways that I can move on from my comedy work and entertaining people and perhaps then allowing them to think about having more conscious and compassionate relationships and think about how we are present in relationships in a more active way. I've now been looking at how we transfer those skills, those relationship skills to our broader relationships, not just our Mm. dating lives on dating apps and so on and our romantic relationships, but how we think about those values in our everyday relationships, in our working lives. Um, the Breakup Monologues book did touch on professional breakups and sort of those career changes and job losses and how they affect our sense of self and sense of identity and how we recover from those and how there are so many parallels really with recovering yeah. from a romantic breakup. But I'm now sort of taking that stage further and and looking at speaking about relationships, resilience and reinvention. And I really had to apply my resilience skills to my book campaign because when it came out in May 2021 we were still at a time when some social restrictions post-pandemic were in place and then there was a long period when even when things went back to in inverted commas normal Mm. they didn't for a long time and everybody was still understandably nervous about going out to live events and if you're an author like me who has a background in performing the place you really want to sell books is at live events and live festivals when you can speak to an audience, connect with them, sign books afterwards. And of course, that's been a whole minefield uh, post-pandemic, you know, yeah. handling books and passing books to yeah, people. And there have been plenty of gigs I've done where I've not been allowed to have a bookstore. There haven't been physical book sales. So you have to think about you know, sort of creatively think about how can you maybe project a QR code onto a screen that people could mm. then take them straight through to an online retailer where they can they can buy the book and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's been really interesting because I was not initially selling the number of hardbacks that my publisher ideally had wanted. So what I've done is sort of the 
apparently impossible in the publishing industry of having more of a long tail book, which continues to have success after the publishing industry is all focused typically around first week success. So you have to sell thousands okay. in the very first week and get on the yeah. Sunday Times bestseller list and have everyone talking about your book and tweeting, um, you know, the, the cover and tweeting photos of them reading it in quirky places on the train and so on. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, probably there are quirkier places than on the train. That's a very normal, uh, quite typical place to be reading a book. But... Uh, <laughs> Perhaps there are other places um, that people might tweet photos of themselves reading books. And so, yes, that it's really interesting to look at what that setup means, because I think the publishing industry is doing a great amount to think about diversity and inclusion. Many big publishers now have imprints that specialise in promoting and amplifying marginalised voices. However, there are still many structures in place in the publishing industry that do still have this whiff of exclusion about them. Because if you place an emphasis on an author having to sell hardback books in week one of release, that is when hardback books are all at full price everywhere. That is already pretty exclusive because many Mm. of my friends, particularly friends who lost work during the pandemic, a lot of my creative friends, a lot of my queer friends actually can't afford $16.99, which was the full price of the hardback. And so they Mm. might wait for the paperback to come out or they might wait for some of the retailers to knock a couple of quid off the hardback, which typically is is what happens when any book has been out a few months. Um, You know, they might enjoy other formats. But actually, my Kindle was really pretty expensive relatively when, you know, you're talking to um, nurses who are waiting to get paid who buy 99p Kindles. You know, it was was like eight pounds. So I think there's a lot to think about how publishing still has structures in place that don't necessarily support authors with without those sort of rich and privileged networks of friends and supporters and allies and peers. So there's still a lot of work to do in thinking about how to support authors who, who come from marginalised communities. I mean, I'm a lesbian woman and talk very openly about being in a relationship with another woman and how that sort of identity has altered my own career narrative, romantic, professional, uh, personal narratives and how that has excluded me from some opportunities, but has also equipped me with these creative resilience skills because I've had to think outside the box and think about having different types of relationships where perhaps being married, which I now am, but perhaps being married. Oh wasn't. yes, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. But perhaps that wasn't part of the story because it didn't seem like it. It was going to be at, at yeah. one stage. So, you know, I think all of these things have informed my own resilience skills. But I, I'm trying, I suppose, to create a message, particularly as I now mental authors um there's an author that I mentor at the moment who we've got a publishing deal for her and and she's she has a disability she has she has MS so again that informs you know her getting out and about to promote the book so we have Mm. to think about how publishing supports authors who are not sort of rich white straight privileged people um, and I think publishing really wants to do that but still hasn't quite worked out that some of these structures that 
place an emphasis on week one sales don't necessarily support a really diverse and inclusive list of authors and so Mm. yeah some books will actually pick up momentum a bit later on particularly for me as I've done all the festivals this summer and been working you know at so many live events but even then there's so much to think about about how I'm often programmed in science areas uh, because there's a lot of psychology and science in in my work presented in quite a fun accessible and immersive way where I bumble my way into the sex lab experiment or (laughs) (laughs) or some kind of experiment about relationships and love Uh, you can read more about that in the book (laughs) um but so I'm often programmed in these areas that aren't necessarily the main books tent. Um, there are mm. some festivals like Wilderness where I will be programmed in. There's a specific queer tent, which is really, really super fun. But they're not right next to the bookshop. So like an add-on kind of. Mm, yeah, kind yeah, of. on the peripheral. Not necessarily so peripheral, but just there's a layout where the author tent is the one where the bookshop is and where the book sales are okay and so because I'm known more as a comedian as a science communicator and comedian as a a, you know an activist in the LGBTQ plus community I would typically get programmed more in those areas because people know me so and, and it is always about who you know in this world isn't it and So it's really interesting how I had to think creatively about that again and make sure this year, as opposed to festivals last year, where people weren't making it over to my official book signings, even though they were like, oh, my God, that was brilliant. We're going to come and buy your book because it's miles away and they got distracted in festival fun. Yeah. You know, a few hardcore fans did make it over. But what I did this year was make sure to liaise with the bookshop and say, can someone actually come over physically to my area, to my tent, with a load of books and, you know, your card machine or whatever you need to to take payment? And let's sell the books immediately after the show in that space. And where that wasn't possible, I made sure they were happy that I would sell a few of my own or there were some cashless festivals where you could get like this complicated cashless reader thing. And I worked out how to use those and become an accredited seller for the bookshop on site. So I'd be selling them through them and then I could invoice the bookshop later mm. for my percentage of those sales. Um, but it all takes a lot of work to to put these <laughs> put these systems in place. And yeah. so I'm having to do, in some ways, the, the publisher's work for thinking about how to be more inclusive. Mm. And I suppose I want to help other authors and other writers and creatives and speakers who may come from marginalised or different or intersectional identities they may be programmed in different spaces than you know the very sort of highbrow main author's tent and how do they actually sell books and still Mm. be seen as a as a credible (laughs) author I mean my book had lovely reviews from the observer loads of women's magazines psychologies magazine wonderful quotes um but you know it's 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 still difficult it's still really hard to make sure that people out there know about it and Mm. I think you know you're sort of fighting against systems that have been in place for so many many years and yeah yeah, this sort of Sunday Times bestseller list phenomenon that's all based around sales in the first week doesn't necessarily take into account the diverse backgrounds that people come from and the diverse backgrounds Mm. that all those people's followers and friends and fans come from. 
Yeah, it's making me think of podcasting and that it's the same thing. You know, you get those sort of the seven days, how many people have downloaded, how many people have listened through the whole thing. And and I know that there were a couple of the big, big hitters, let's call them, <laughs> um, for want of a better word, who, you know, at launch, launch time, you know, gather. They they have prizes that they give to people who are like promoting their stuff and um, you know, it's, it's there's a real strategy around it, but that requires you to have a that some kind of visibility in the first place in order to kind of get that out, in order to get people to say, yes, I'm going to be in your podcasting team and I'm going to rec- um, listen and I'm going to write a review and I'm going to share it and um, I'm going to take a picture of me in a, on a, in a quirky place listening to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and and when you're someone who you know I come from a really working class background I this this isn't my world (laughs) naturally you know this is so how do I gather those teams and yeah kind of find the places I was trying to get sponsorship for the podcast because you know you know they're you know they're not they're not cheap things to have and I love doing the podcast it's a really, really important part of my business plan but I would like someone, if anyone's listening, to, you know, to sponsor them because it, it but it gives a sense of credibility as well, I think. So, yeah. So all of what you were saying, I think that needing building your resilience skills, not to take the crap, you know, because I think sometimes with resilience, it can feel like, well, I've just got to accept that this is the way it is. It's not it's not necessarily about that. Or, no, it's not about that. It's about. How do you kind of keep looking at different ways of doing things? How do you think outside the box? How do you bounce back when you're not getting the answer that you want? How do you, and I think for both of us, if we think back to that first conversation, the work that we're doing has shifted quite a lot, I think, for both of us in terms of where we're heading and 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 who we're working with and what we want to do in the world. And I think that's partly because we we are also able to shift and be flexible and agile and resilient. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. It's so important. And as I speak about a lot now, comedians do have to develop agile resilience skills because we're going on stage, putting ourselves out of our comfort zones in weird rooms full of drunk people and obviously you have to deal with hecklers and all kinds of adversity sometimes the room's just not set up very well and the microphone doesn't work I remember one year I was doing Edinburgh Fringe and I had a backdrop behind me that was sort of held up with drawing pins that kept falling down to reveal everyone's rubbish and weird props and you know kind of all paraphernalia behind me and so I was having to try and make light of this and make this into a fun part of the show but it it doesn't feel incredibly professional I mean it was part of the free fringe where um, people don't pay to to come and see you but hopefully they then pay on the way out they make a donation towards the artist's costs for being there but I feel that that backdrop falling down really would impact how much money someone puts into bucket even if they think I've been great the fact that the room was not set up in a really professional way might really impact whether they think I'm going to throw a tenner in or 
you know, just a pound. Mm. I mean, it really would make make a difference. So I found that really quite <laughs> quite disappointing. Um, but yes, you have to develop those resilient skills and find a way to keep on rewriting your scripts, keep on resetting your own boundaries, of course, about perhaps not accepting that's how it is um, and that you're mm. going to keep doing shows in weird rooms where things don't work and keep falling down. Um, and maybe you're going to work with very professional and slick venues where they have a wonderful tech rehearsal and set everything up and rehearse all your sound cues and that the microphone works perfectly. And uh, I love working with those venues where everything is, is done properly. It's only really mm. Edinburgh Fringe where things are, where many corners are cut, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's also a feeling that our work and what we have to offer is a value as well, isn't it? If every, if, you know, it's not, I don't think it's about perfectionism. It's not about kind of being really slick and shiny and I don't know what the other word is, but it's a, it's, it's just, it's about being able to, do the best that you can be. So having the conditions around you which help you to do your best. And if you have got something falling down on, on the back, well, that must be so distracting as well. Like if I if if you're in the middle of a joke and then you just suddenly like down it goes again and everyone's eyes are looking behind. So you can't then, I mean, you know, maybe you can kind of take something from it and and make a joke out of it, but it, it it's like another effort, isn't it? Another more energy. Yeah. And it changes the script, doesn't it? Because jokes are so reliant on timing. And if it does happen at that critical moment when you're just about to get to the end of a story, the punchline after an elaborate setup, <laughs> it really does ruin your momentum. But I suppose I have become again fairly adept at sort of dealing with those things and making it fun also the lighting in that room wasn't really very professional and there was a basically a light switch because there was a part of the show that I wanted to do in the dark because I was a ghost I, I was three ghosts in the show of our romantic past present and future so we're a bit paying a nod to a Christmas carol which is yeah. interesting because we have these phrases in romantic relationships and dating now ghosting and yeah. uh, my favorite one is actually where you marley someone rather than ghost them which means you do ghost them but pop up again at Christmas so so I was being these ghosts to sort of pay a nod to this weird new language we have around breakups but also this idea of perhaps making a warning about if dating becomes very unethical and we are just swiping right and people come become very disposable to us in our minds Do, does dating become the ultimate blood sport and you can sort of vaporize your ex so there was this one section of the show where i was a ghost um and I would just shine a torch under my face to do a sort of spooky lighting effect, but we needed to do blackout for that. And the light switch for that was at the back of the room, which I couldn't possibly get to as the performer. So I had to rope in a member of the audience to be lighting monitor. And I'd be like, you know, Dave, are you ready? Um, <laughs> and so he, in a way it becomes a collaborative thing and you're all having fun yeah. about the fact the room is not set up properly for, mm -hmm. for this show. Which was kind of fun, but like you say, you do have to ask questions about whether you are 
valuing yourself and your own work or allowing it to be valued in the way that it <laughs> that it should be i would like to say that i until going arriving in edinburgh that month i had not realized how limited the space i was in would be it's not like you pop up to edinburgh for a day and yeah, check the space recce. out and go yeah, yeah, oh, yeah lovely you just look at some photos on a website and go okay <laughs> yeah it's the same as some of the facilitation that i do occasionally you know you might you might you don't necessarily know the room that you're in you know you can ask for things and mostly you get what you need but there is also that moment where you do have to show up and you know think okay well I've planned it but that maybe it was good to plan but that plan's not very useful now I need to like you know replan rethink reinvent this this thing that I had in mind (laughs) yes (laughs) we've all been there we've all been there um I have a question for you which I'm going to come back to the relationship resilience reinvention bit in a second but when we spoke before, I well, I always ask the question, what does do good and do well mean to you? Um, and you provided a really, remember it, a really lovely example of a tennis player, but I cannot remember her name, which is... It's Naomi Osaka. And that's it. So I was speaking about, if people haven't heard this, I, I did think, oh God, I'll never answer that question again in as good as that. So do go back and listen to that. And I spoke <laughs> about how when she won the US Open during the pandemic, she had a series of face masks of people of colour who had been killed in police violence and so the face masks bore the names of these people and she had seven face masks that she would wear during the tournament and of course there was no guarantee she would get through to the final and actually win the final but there was this I guess interesting symbiosis between how she wanted to keep winning her matches and do do well because Mm. As a result of that, she was also doing good and raising more awareness of the, you know, mm. what had happened to to these people and the brutality that was was going on, and and you know, sadly, the fact that there is still racism in in our world, and so making us more conscious and aware and and compassionate, and obviously, I mean, Black Lives Matter was a, hu- a huge deal during the pandemic as well so I think she played quite quite a real part in raising Mm. raising awareness in a a really fantastic way so I thought she was a brilliant example of doing good and doing Mm. well and those two things feeding into one another Um, and I I think for me it's often when I do an event and I feel I've done good and done well is when there's a combination of people having enjoyed it as entertainment and that immediate feedback of laughter, which as a comedian you want, you do look for that. But also when people come up to me and feel that they have taken something away from it that's deeper than that, they have had cause to reflect, maybe have late night discussions with their partner about their boundaries, about their relationship, about what things like monogamy mean or you know whether they want to have children or some of these deep whether they want to get married some of these deep issues that they've not been able to talk about or communicate about and I had a young woman come up to me at Cheltenham Literary Festival and I'd done an event there at Waterstones as part of it they had this lit crawl program that was a free program that 
you know, I like the sound of that. It's sort of a bit more accessible than the sort of big, you know, the big tent where they had the posh authors, <laughs> um, who, you know, you pay lots of money to go and see them. So uh, we were doing these more anarchic shows in, in Waterstones, which is, that's great because that is a bookshop. And so people can yeah. immediately buy your book there. And they were really fun um, people staffing it actually at Waterstones. So shout out to Waterstones in Cheltenham. And it was, yeah, it was it was really fun. And this young woman came up to me at the end and she was saying, oh, you know, my ex and I really could never speak to each other, communicate with each other. We just really struggled. We couldn't talk to each other about anything important that we needed to. But I think if we'd come and seen you and seen your comedy, even if we hadn't stayed together, we would have communicated so much better. And so that was really lovely to hear that because mm. I suppose that is what I'm trying to do is create this message. That's my mission, I suppose, to create mm. this message of having more compassionate and thoughtful and conscious relationships across our, as I say, romantic, platonic, professional relationships. How do we set our expectations, set our boundaries? How do we become a bit more open and transparent about these things not just with other people, but with ourselves in the first place. Yeah. Sometimes we yes. don't recognise You know, I clearly hadn't done work on my own boundaries when I went to do that Edinburgh Fringe run. And like you say, I was like, oh, well, this is the way it is. Everyone's doing a show in a, uh, you know, in a weird cupboard that's not a yeah. venue and it's not set up to be a venue. But perhaps I hadn't really considered how that would make me feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's so right. And it would... I may have made this up, but wasn't there something about Naomi Osaka? Didn't she pull out because of her well-being? Was that her? Oh, yes. And that's really interesting because that is after we spoke about Naomi Osaka. It was, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it's really interesting. She's had a really, really tough time since um, when, when we spoke about her, she was winning everything really she'd won just mm. on the US Open and the Australian Open and we had not yet had the, the French Open in Paris which is the next Grand Slam after those and that's on a clay court which is not Naomi's favoured surface and she was obviously really struggling and feeling vulnerable leading into this tournament and she wanted to not make herself available for the post-match post -match press conferences where journalists will ask you, oh, what went wrong? Why did you lose? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, a bit of a bear pit and not always, yeah. you know, the most understanding. And so, I mean, of course, there are lots of great journalists who will ask really interesting and, and empathetic and conscious questions. But there is that feeling of immediately after you've lost and you feel devastated because maybe you had this dream of, of going further in that tournament maybe you were one of the favorites and you were supposed to go further and you feel like you've let people down your fans yeah. or your trainers or your team and so yeah there was a big a massive press story about you know how can she is you know isn't she being a bit of a diva isn't she being demanding yeah. well-being oh. <laughs> well-being oh i roll um but yeah. of course she has now yeah in addition to what the, the good that she did previously she's now begun a, a really interesting conversation about more active thought about about her well-being and mm. there is a more conscious discussion going on within within sport within tennis about you know having more active sort of well-being 
check-ins and areas for for players at tournaments so yeah so yeah I found that really interesting just to explain the the tennis link um, I'm a massive <laughs> tennis fan and always have been and my my wife works in tennis she is a strength and conditioning oh. coach for young up-and-coming players and in fact um, worked with Emma Raducanu who <gasps> won oh, the US Open. <laughs> that's amazing yeah I think it's interesting with the I with with that news article or that piece of news. I was really struck by how many people very quickly dismissed her boundaries. You know, like who and like as you say, who wants to like go and be critiqued after something hasn't gone well? Because it just amplifies. Well, this is how I would feel. This ampl it might amplify what you're already thinking about yourself. You know, if you're already beating yourself up feeling like you've let people down, feeling like you did that bit wrong. If you hadn't have done that, then there would be a different outcome. You know, if I had, if I (laughs) delivered a coaching session or for, you know, a group session, and then there was someone afterwards really grilling me, that's that's no good for my well-being. I need to lie down and just rest and get back into a more mentally healthy state so that I can reflect more um objectively and look at the facts as opposed to look at what these you know funny inner voices or in her the outer voices these journalists talking to her yeah isn't that interesting how the outer voices amplify what the inner voice is already feeling and thinking and and really crack open those vulnerabilities so yeah Mm. I think she's really started an interesting discussion but she was heavily Mm. fined for missing those press conferences um, mm. I'm penalised, and I mean, I know these tennis players are incredibly rich, but yeah, it seems like you say very harsh to expect people to immediately go and unpick and analyse what they would perceive as as their failure. You know, I mean, we talked last time about this sort of failure and success narrative, and how we often think relationships have failed if they end, but I don't believe that we should measure a relationship's quality by its by its duration and its value by that length of time so yeah we need to really rethink our our whole sort of toxic narratives around success Mm. and failure and how those things are really Mm. not a binary no and maybe success is being able to set our boundaries and hold them firm and actually role model some of those boundaries you know for you as a mentor um of authors and you know for me as a coach you know I often on social media on this podcast I'm talking about you know ways that we can work more productively more effectively look after ourselves be kind and compassionate to ourselves as much as we are to others and whilst I don't always do that because I'm human um, you know it's important that we're that I'm able to model that I'm modeling in fact a client of mine said the other day because they were asking me about a, a call and I said no to something and and they responded actually that was really helpful because you set a boundary and it reminded me that I need to do that too um so you know whilst we want to support people and look after them we want to also show demonstrate role model good ways of setting boundaries good ways of valuing ourselves and saying actually that's not good enough it's not good enough anymore that I'm walking up into these places that don't have the technical equipment that I need in order to do my show well (laughs) yes (laughs) um 
yeah, so I went on a bit of a rant there. But yeah, oh, interestingly, another thing that I felt I was a bit of a lone voice in raising the alarm about at that Edinburgh Fringe, which is the last one I did in 2017. I haven't I haven't been back since, is the escalating accommodation costs, which again are ridiculous and make the fringe really exclusive and really difficult and challenging for anyone who doesn't sort of have, you know, a certain amount of privilege to be able to go and do and present their show at this massively important showcase for people in comedy and theatre and and performing arts, spoken word and so on. Mm. And interestingly, again, there is now a real discussion and the Edinburgh Fringe Board and Society are really taking this as a a serious issue and looking at ways that, that they can make accommodation more accessible. But, you know, I knew a woman who that year was in some really unsafe hostel you know with with men that she didn't feel comfortable being around but it was the only way she could afford to be there and I just Mm. thought something isn't isn't right about Mm. you know again another sort of exclusive system where there hasn't been the thought paid to how you know young women how people from marginalized identities how people with less less accessible ready money (laughs) to go and pour thousands of pounds into renting a flat yeah. Um, you know how it, it's it's available to them yeah you've just reminded me when I, I so my degree is in drama and theatre studies and there was one year where a show was being taken up to Edinburgh and I was asked to go but I couldn't because I, in it, because I had to work <laughs> because I didn't have you know I had to work in I mean I was lucky or fortunate should I say those were the days where I didn't have tuition fees <laughs> like they are now but but I did have to pay for accommodation and all my food and, you know, all of that sort of stuff as well. And maybe I did get a grant. But anyway, I had to I had to work in the summer. And so I couldn't. I could not go. To, and I was desperate. It was like, I've never been to Edinburgh Festival, ever, ever. And, um, yeah, and at that time, I was in my early 20s and just thought, oh, God, how amazing would that be? And then I watched them drive off. Oh, fun. <laughs> oh. Feel sorry for me, everybody. Oh, I do. I do. I really do. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I think, you know, and that was 20 years ago. And yeah. here we are still having that, you know, having that conversation. So I think, yeah, I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's really important. Even if we feel we might not change the whole system, our voices can move the needle. We can influence and we can have impact. We can we can say something in a way, even if hundreds of other people are saying it, we can say something in a way that really resonates with someone else, which might shift their perspective, which might help them to see that they are worth, they're priceless and, you know, they um, are worth people spending the time and effort to get things right for so you know being able to stand up and being maybe if we have that privilege how can we be that lone voice sometimes mm-hmm. who's standing up and saying hang on a minute this isn't right yeah <laughs> we need to be talking about this we need to be doing something about it yeah well yes and I did speak about Edinburgh Fringe in my book even though my book is about breakups I sort of as I've suggested took that fairly laterally and and as well as talking about all my sort of dating history and breakups and what I've learned from those I talked about breaking up 
with you know jobs or situations and I speak about breaking up with Edinburgh Fringe which I yes you do that year perceived to be possibly my most toxic relationship I'd kept going back and getting the same result and still feeling terrible about myself at the end of August every year because you know I hadn't perhaps won all the awards or done all the things or had all the five-star reviews that people that you compare yourself to all the time would have had, even though I may have actually grown and developed as a performer and had actually many lovely reviews and and many, many great pieces of feedback and perhaps met promoters who were going to book me in the future. But you don't necessarily know about the things, the good things that are going to happen when you're right in it and immediately when you return from Edinburgh Fringe. So I did decide to write about that in the book and my publisher were a bit kind of, oh, you know, why are you writing about this? And, oh, you know, don't you think you're being a bit too critical of Edinburgh Fringe? And I thought, no. And I kind of stuck to my guns about putting that in Mm. because I think it was an important issue to raise. And I know um, there's a wonderful performer called Sarah Louise Young who was one of the real fans of my book. And she is now quite influential on sort of Edinburgh Fringe board and she's one of the artist representatives and it is interesting how now this issue Mm. about accommodation is really something that she is raising and giving a lot of airtime to so I hope maybe I put that seed or planted that seed or enhanced uh, thinking about that if she was already thinking that there really was a situation that needs to be needs to be spoken about. Yeah it reminds me also thinking of you know and I think this came up when you came into the into my group program around those toxic partnerships that you might have with if you're a freelancer, for example, and you're working with a particular client or a particular organization and you keep going back because there's a fear. There's a fear that if I don't go back, I won't I won't get the work, I won't get paid, I won't get the credibility, I won't get the resources. I won't, da, 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 da. So you keep returning, returning, returning and not actually loving it. <laughs> anymore and it's not actually bringing you know it's a lie all of it is a lie so you know for us thinking about what where where can we put our energies instead where can we build those relationships with people who it feels really equitable where it feels rich and you are getting what you need and they're getting what you need and we you can be open and honest about that and it's not so such a power Mm. weird like power balance that keeps us I'm doing like weird movements with my hands. I like your weird movements. If you watch it. Not that they're weird, they're great. I know what you're doing. (laughs) I'm feeling it. Watch the video and you'll see what I'm doing. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I think one of the things that I perhaps would invite any freelancers to do, or actually if you're working in organisations and you work particularly with partnerships, is to really spend some time thinking about which are the ones that are really working for you and them and which are the ones that you're still in. Um, because of maybe fear, scarcity, not kind of valuing yourself, not feeling like those boundaries are firm enough. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Thinking about the sort of relationships, resilience, reinvention that I speak about, I find it really interesting how the relationships we choose to get into and what informs those choices and how oftentimes we're misled down perhaps not quite the right path for us at that particular time because of something that looks good on paper. And, you know, we have these matching Mm. algorithms on, on dating apps that say, oh, this person's great for you because you like all the same films and music. But actually, they're quite superficial values. and Maybe you don't share the same core values about 
life and the world and I don't know the environment or Brexit or whether you know you want to be vaccinated or not and all these quite divisive issues that we've had to think about in in recent years and that might say something much deeper about who you are (laughs) as a person uh so i yeah i talk a little bit about that in my book about how Mm. divorce rates kind of surged after brexit because people realized they were actually very very different to the person they were married to and had very different core values even if they had some more superficial things in common that maybe tinder had decided would make them a good match I mean not that Tinder really matches on anything other than whether somebody likes your picture (laughs) um but yeah I do find those algorithms interesting I was once on a um website that sent me my own profile back to me but I I was still only a 73 percent match (laughs) didn't even please didn't even please Uh myself but yeah I do think it's, it's so interesting how we can think about what looks good on paper and impose these yeah. real pressures on ourselves but you know then it is about finding those relationships that we do get value from and, and nurturing those and leaning into those mm. and enjoying those and I suppose I am going on a process of reinvention and transformation at the moment because I have for many many years thought I am a comedian I still say that first because that's what many people know me as but really I'm becoming more of a speaker a thinker mm. a writer mm. and conveying ideas and often there is a lot of mental. fun and, <laughs> and, mental. Mental. and there's a yeah. lot of comedy and fun in that but it's yeah. relationships you know with people like you Sarah that I I sort of feel like yes this is a really positive connection this is someone who hears and understands what what I'm trying to to achieve and what I'm trying to do and sort of spread this mm. awareness and this message of of doing good whatever that means to us and and doing mm. that well I I hope so it's really interesting how particularly with the world changing and everything being very different the past couple of years or so the different relationships that I've started building and the people that I connect with aren't necessarily all sort of comedy people anymore even though I love going and making a room full of people laugh I have to say that the stand-up gigs where I can't do more of the expansive thinking and reflection and the sort of thought and ideas because it is a sort of Saturday night comedy club where you have to sort of have your punchlines and bang, 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 get them out. Yeah. I, I do, I think, increasingly feel less satisfied by those gigs because there isn't the sense of doing good and doing well. I feel like I can only really do one of those things. I can do well. <laughs> I hope. I could often do well. Sometimes I don't <laughs> even do that. But... <laughs> Usually I do because I'm experienced and I've got a few different tools yeah, in my yeah. in my armory. Um, but I suppose I shouldn't be hard on myself because perhaps I'm still doing good because I am, after all, a woman getting up on stage, a middle-aged woman getting up on stage, a lesbian woman getting up on stage, and I'm representing those identities which are not always represented as a Saturday night comedy club. No, <laughs> no, they're not. And also that you're, you know, there is... I think with all arts and culture, it's like you might not be able to have that deep conversation, but as you say, you might drop something in that shifts someone's perspective or even just make them laugh. And flipping heck, we like, we need to laugh. We don't, well, I know certainly I don't laugh enough, you know, and have that kind of, it all can get quite intense and quite serious. So there's power, there is power in that. Mm. Um, 
And I was going to say, what's next for you then? Because it feels like, and I sort of see my, for want of a better word, journey and what you're saying as well in that, you know, I used to love doing socially engaged arts in terms of being on the ground with people in communities doing the work. And then I think you get to a certain point where, or I did, where that wasn't enough anymore. And But everything sort of feels like it's being pulled together. When I think about this work that I'm doing now, it feels like I'm using things that I did in my schooling, in my drama degree, in the things I learn in the public not-for-profit sector, in education, my teaching degree. All of it's just being pulled together into this thing that I'm creating um, and I'm sure there'll be other, you know, and and I'm not, and I think that will change as well. I feel like I'm still on that transition, but kind of seeing that as really exciting and an opportunity. Yeah. Anyway, so what's next for you? Where's your like next, what's your next bit? Yes. Well, it's interesting. You talk about things sort of being quite circular and coming back and using old skills and old ideas and old values that perhaps you thought you'd you'd left behind and so it is interesting how in some ways I'm moving from a sort of pure arts and performing career back to business and perhaps the corporate world a bit I mean back when I emerged from school and university I had you know, I'd, I'd been a, a real swat and I'd had some quite good exam results back in the day. I mean, I didn't actually use my degree and I, because I, I had a bit of a, I suppose, or we could describe as a, as a breakdown when I came out um, at university. So I didn't do as well in my exams at, at university because uh, the world was pretty horrible to uh, people like me, you know. <laughs> and so I really struggled with that. And but when I'd come out of school, I was, you know, getting interviews for really interesting jobs and, and sort of high powered jobs. And, uh, you know, I could have gone, it, particularly in the sort of media industry, I was getting interviews at the BBC and that kind of thing. I, I could have sort of had um, sort of executive positions in, in the media world and, and that kind of thing. And I suppose I felt my narrative, particularly as a queer woman, excluded me from that or certainly excluded me from being authentic in that world so I've trodden this very interesting freelance path which sometimes has been quite challenging certainly in terms of earning enough money or thinking of creatively about how to earn enough money um you know it's taken me on this other path but now I'm sort of in some ways meeting these um you know sort of media executives and they're starting to book me for these diversity and inclusion talks or talks about relationships resilience and reinvention and you know I might sort of be back in that world a bit which is is really really interesting and I think perhaps I hope that I present a really interesting story because I've been outside of that world doing this very <laughs> meandering and interesting journey where I've been a comedian I've been a writer I've been a podcaster before I was a comedian I was a, a musician I spoke to your group mm. about how I transitioned from music to comedy when I had a, a house fire and lost a load oh, of my, yeah, the guitars my your description of the guitars <laughs> yes the, the guitars were all melted and mangled into oh. weird shapes and the, the keys on my keyboard were all hanging down like stalactites oh. and so that felt like a signal to sort of change path because I it was very difficult to process that loss of all my 
instruments. Um, you know, I, I had insurance. I did get some money and I, I carried on playing and, and writing songs a little bit less formally than when I'd been releasing albums and, and touring more professionally. Um, but yeah, that did signal a change. But I've done all these interesting things, what I, which I hope mean I bring a very different kind of approach, a very creative approach mm. to back to the business world and the corporate world. And it's been really interesting to sort of meet some of the people who are perhaps doing some of the jobs that, that I might have done and being a, a head of diversity inclusion at a, a larger organisation and that kind of thing. So it's it's really interesting in some ways to come full circle um but i certainly do want to keep on writing and performing and keep that creative path and that creative career open as well i would love to write more books um and obviously the paperback of the breakup monologues will be coming out and i'll certainly be going around speaking about that and speaking about breakups and love and relationships and and how we would ever and maybe transform and reinvent ourselves after a breakup Mm. Do you have any idea what your next book might be about? Would you love? If I said to you, you can write anything about anything, Rosie, Um, what would you write about? Here's a massive budget. (laughs) Oh, oh, that'd be amazing. Yes. Well, I've got a few ideas and I'm sort of toying around with them at the moment. So, Mm. you know, in an ideal world, I would have the opportunity to write several more books over the next, you know, decade or, or so. Um, but it, yeah, you do have to, as you say, persuade someone to invest in you and pay you in advance to go and take the time to research a book and, and write it. And then, yeah. you know, hopefully they're going to put a lovely cover on it, which the Breakup Monologues does have a beautiful cover. It's absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. Although there is an interesting story about that in terms <laughs> of diversity and inclusion, because it's got um, sort of like the outlines of two faces looking away from each other and the cover that we have they're both slightly feminized outlines of faces which works for me because I'm a gay woman and the central Mm. relationship narrative is me and my wife and the first design that I was sent looked very much like the outline of a woman and a man so a heterosexual couple a heteronormative partnership and so I had to sort of flag up and you hate in publishing to be the annoying author who's always asking questions and and querying things but I just thought I've got to say that looks like a straight couple and that's probably not not right and not going to quite work and it only needs a bit of a change but and they were fine to do it. But isn't it funny that they thought it was fine to send me that and nobody thought, gosh, maybe we should, it does look a bit like a man and a woman, maybe she would make, mm-hmm. we should make it look like two women before we send it to Rosie and not sort of think about the, the sort of tiny acts of erasure and the cumulative effect that those moments have when you have to say, oh, well, hang on, you know, I am a gay woman and it might be nice if you could actually recognize that in the artwork rather than have yeah. a sort of heteronormative cover that I perhaps feel a little excluded by <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it gets as you say it gets exhausting talking about the fact that the backdrop is falling down and asking for maybe someone to put it up properly uh, mm. <laughs> it'd be nice if we didn't have to keep asking yeah but yeah but that said my publisher did a wonderful job and it is a beautiful cover and the paperback cover is really lovely it's a sort of slight variation on that as well mm. it is important we had um beth cox on the podcast last year 
who is a diversity and inclusion consultant within the publishing industry actually and she was talking on the on the podcast about all of the things that perhaps people need to think about at the very beginning like is it's not like an add-on like let's go check check let's check back and make sure that we haven't you know excluded anyone why don't we start from the beginning and say right how can we make this as inclusive and just make it more make it much more common in our thinking that that's just that's part of the process um thank you Rosie how do people find you follow you buy your books all of those sorts of things well they can follow me on twitter if that's still going to continue existing (laughs) who knows knows? i'm going with it i'm just like i can't change that (laughs) i'm staying on it for the time being because i have a lovely community of followers and and people there i totally respect some people have decided to leave recently Uh, but my feeling is if the sort of inclusive and thoughtful and reflective people stay on there then it helps to keep our voices alive on there rather than it become a very different space so I am at Rosie Wilby on Twitter and I'm also on Instagram at breakup monologues so under the guise of my book and podcast there and the breakup monologues podcast is available on all good podcast platforms so listen to it wherever you get your pods and the book is available on all yeah good bookie platforms um so yeah hardback and kindle and audiobook narrated by me and depending on when this podcast comes out the paperback might be might be out or just about to come out it'll be be january so oh well the paperback will be just (laughs) just about coming out so that'll be incredibly timely 19th of january is the paperback launch so ahead of that you'll be able to pre-order the new paperback which is um slightly more accessibly priced than the hardback and has this lovely new cover one or two little corrections and updates as well but no no huge edits or changes um but I yeah I would love people to engage with that and yeah if they want to listen to me narrate it the audiobook process was quite <laughs> quite interesting <laughs> I'd love to do that <laughs> I want to become a voiceover artist I've decided I'd like to do that yeah so yes and if you are because I saw Rosie perform at a lovely little cafe that we have in Ramsgate that was ages ago. Well, it feels like ages ago. And so if you get a chance to go and see her, um, read some of the book as well. You have a brilliant time and you get to meet Rosie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much as always. Um, maybe we'll do part three in 20... <laughs> 2020 every year we'll just have an update so what are we thinking about this topic um but thank you it's been really great and uh take very good care thank you thank you for listening i will put all of the links and things in the show notes so you can access those if you would like my support then do come and find me you can email me you can send me a dm you can check out my website sarahfox.co.uk and send me a message through there i would love to hear from you if you want to get in touch with rosie all the details are in the show notes take very good care